This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. And welcome to uh, a podcast on the New Books Network. This is New Books in Sports. I am Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Sydney. I am speaking today with Alan McDougall. He is a professor of history at the University of Guelph, and he is the author of uh, what I think is one of the most exciting uh, books I've read in football history and sports history in a while, uh, called Contested Fields, A Global History, of modern football. It's out in 2020 with the University of Toronto Press. Uh, welcome, Alan. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me on. Alan, I, I, I like to start by asking people how they became sports uh, scholars and uh, how they developed their projects. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this, how you got into studying sport, and um, how you developed this particular project. Sure. Well, I guess to, to take it all the way back, I mean, I think I got into becoming a sports historian because of the fact that after I'd finished my PhD, which was on uh, the communist youth organization in East Germany, I was thinking, OK, well, I, I, I got the job luckily at Guelph here in Canada. And I was thinking about, well, what, what should I do to kind of continue in this field? I'm going to be here for a long time, I hope. And um, the number one passion in my life really outside of friends and family is of course sport so that was the moment when the penny dropped really and I thought well I can just do sport as my research life and so I my first project in sport was a a history of football in communist East Germany the people's game which came out in 2014 and, and was quite well received and as a subsequent to that I ended up working on this second book on a much broader scale and trying to reach a much wider audience, uh, contested fields, which, as you said, is a, is a global history of football. But I guess the other answer to, to kind of jump back further is just, you know, to say that, I, you know, I've always been a huge lover of football. I played as a kid. Um, I was actually, for you know, I was a fairly good player until studies became more important. I was on the junior books at Tottenham, Tottenham Hotspurs, and um, so I played at a fairly high standard for a while, so I'd always loved playing football. My earliest memories, I think, were of the 1982 World Cup, uh, and I was, for some reason, despite the family name, I have no Scottish background, but I was a huge Scotland fan of that World Cup. I think because my club team, Liverpool, had lots of Scottish players, whereas England didn't. So um, I have strong memories of, you know, football really shaping every phase of my life as a kid, both playing it and watching it. And so, you know, later on to be able to turn that into academic work was, um, yeah, it was really a dream come true without sounding too cliched. No, I mean, I, I, um, we were chatting for a very brief bit about this before we started the interview. Like it is, it is a pretty lucky position we're in, although in some ways I think, um, you know, studying sport is tough too. Like people maybe don't take sport as seriously as they, as they could do. One of the things I, thought was really interesting before I even started reading your book was that I noticed it's actually in an international themes and issues series. So it's not aimed principally at an audience of people who are like, oh, 
I'm already drinking the sport Kool-Aid. This is aimed at a very broad audience. So I, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about how you conceived of situating this book kind of in the field and who you hope it speaks to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was lucky to work at the University of Toronto Press with um, a series editor. It's the International Themes and Issues series that the UTP runs with the Canadian Historical Association. The series editor, Pierre-Yves Saunier, is a you know, very well-known transnational historian and also, like so many of us, you know, a huge sports fan. So in my conversations with him, um, we started to think about ways in which we could um, introduce uh, a sporting topic into this series. And, of course, football was the the obvious one. Of course, there's the sort of FIFA propaganda line about the world's game. But, of course, we know that there's also a lot of truth to that. So it was really interesting. You know, I suppose I was, you know, to go back to my own personal experience, I mean, my, my, literally my first understanding of the world and other countries came from football. I mean, that again, that sounds, you know, quite basic. But as a kid, you know, through Panini sticker albums for the 82 and 86 World <laughs> Cup, through watching games on television, through listening on the radio, um, you know, that was how I first encountered the Eastern Bloc, you know, communist teams from communist Eastern Europe. That's how I first encountered probably South American teams. Um, so football was my first sort of experience in my life as a, as, a, as a kind of idea of international exchange where borders could be crossed and they weren't barriers that were put up between countries. So I think that was in my, in my mind. And, you know, my own interest in some of the research I'd done on East German football had been, in, you know, I'd been interested in kind of breaking down the cliche that, that the communist East Germany was just this closed society defined by the Berlin Wall, defined by the Stasi. Uh, and actually in my work on East German football, I looked you know, quite seriously at how um, football officials and players and fans and coaches in East Germany tried to reach out to the rest of the world, obviously to other communist countries, but also to the West. And this was always quite a fraught process. But I was interested in um, internationalization in my first project on East German football. So... Those things came together with uh, Pierre-Yves' support and kind of came up with this idea of, of writing one of the quintessential stories, I think, of modern international cultural exchange, and that's football. Because I'm sure it's the same for you, but, you know, the, the way in which I connect with the world when I'm traveling, you know, if I'm in a taxi or <laughs> if I'm, you know, in a bar somewhere or if I'm anywhere, it doesn't have to be just in academic conferences, is to talk about sport and predominantly, I would say, to talk about so I guess it was a combination of uh, those kind of personal and professional interests that, that brought me to think about the international history of sport. And also, I guess just finally on this, I think, and, and I'm sure obviously you'd be aware of this too, working in the field, that a lot of the ways in which we tell um, sports history narratives, both kind of popular sports histories, but also I think a lot of academic sports histories, is we tend to do that through the national lens. And mm -hmm. in particular... When, you know, sports history was being built up as a field, you know, in the 70s and 80s in particular by pioneering figures, you know, it was histories of Italian football, for example, or British football, if I think of someone like Tony Mason and figures like that. All very important contributions to building sport as a serious area of historical study. Um, but what fascinated me, I think, both as an academic and personally, is the way in which sport breaks down those borders and football in particular breaks down those borders. And so I tried to kind of organize the book in ways in which you could look at the sort of different ways in which these sort of cultural exchanges, political exchanges, economic exchanges through football happened across, you know, 150 years that, you know, the, the globalization of football is, is not a 21st century invention. No, in fact, uh, I, one of the things I found the most fascinating about the book um, was its organization. I mean, so I, I picked it up and I'm thinking, okay, we have a global history of football. And I, I, I kind of, I was, I was maybe expecting like a more scholarly and punchy, you know, Goldblatt or something, but your organization is completely different. And I think really enriching to the discussion instead of this chronological kind of, oh, we start with, we start with England and let's move on. Um, you're organizations completely different so i wonder if you can talk oh i don't i don't want to ruin it i want you to tell <laughs> tell us but <laughs> yeah sure i mean it, yeah. i mean tell it's us. interesting you mentioned david goldblatt there who's you know i mean i guess one thing to say is you know my book was that i was encouraged shall we say to make my book 
lot shorter than David Goldblatt as the ball is round. So, you know, like if you're telling the story... It's impossible to teach because it's well, too long. Well, that's right. It's, it's too long. And, uh, you know, it's quite heavy to hold up if you've got the paper copy. So, yeah, it, I think if you've got... I mean, I, I think about this a lot as a historian, you know, what are the benefits and drawbacks of chronological versus thematic approaches? And, and in my book on... The previous book I wrote on East German football... Um, which was also a history of the entire period of East German football from sort of 45 to 90. I ended up going with a thematic approach to that book because um, the story just felt so complex to tell chronologically that you just get kind of bogged down in the narrative details. And I think with a global history of football from whatever, 1863 to 2020, I think I would have probably just gone mad trying to shoehorn that into under 200 pages. So, yeah, my approach in the end, and I think there's some risks to it. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think people like narratives in sport. They like things that go in order sometimes. So it, I guess it could be seen in some ways a little risky, was to think of nine or ten themes that really spoke to um, the globalization of football and football's international story. And within each of those chapters, I guess I'd broadly tell the story chronologically. Um, but that's that was the approach I took. So... Uh, I think I open with a chapter on migrations, which is kind of, you know, the ways in which players have moved around the world from the very early days of football to the kind of upsurge in player transfers from roughly the 90s onwards. Uh, then I talked about, you know, big themes that, that kind of really speak to us, I think, in sport in 2021 and 2020, like race and gender. Um, spectators, that was a very complex and big chapter to try and fit into one. So I looked at spectators spaces so looking at stadiums in particular and the ways in which they could be used for political and other purposes then the one chapter that had a real difficulty in finding a title for it uh, was ended up with a title of confrontations and i'd initially called that chapter politics but my my series editor pierre eva pointed out the entire book's about politics you know? yeah <laughs> and so, and so so confrontations was meant to be the sort of the ways in which Sport can sometimes be the sort of usually the metaphorical site of warring nations, but occasionally the actual site of war between nations. So, yeah, that was the idea to sort of tell the story in in thematic ways that would really show the reader the extent to which football history over this 150 or 160 years has been so globally interconnected in so many different ways for players, coaches, spectators, and um, yeah, I, I think. I, well, I hope readers like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly, I, I liked it. I can see why you would say that there had risks involved as well, too, because I, I, for one, am always constantly telling, you know, encouraging colleagues, encouraging students to write more thematically, but generally worry about straying too far from chronology for the reasons you suggest. Like People like chronology and storytelling is important, too. But um, for people who are listening and haven't picked up the book, uh, the, the chapters are migrations, money, competitions, gender, race, spaces, spectators, and confrontations. And um, there is a, there is a um, it, before you start the chapters, there is a, uh, a kind of modern football, a timeline. And in your introduction, you give some of that, um, give some of that kind of more uh, historiographic and also chronological mm -hmm. discussion. So I thought like for, for my own, purposes as a reader I thought it was really interesting but also as teacher um, I could I could imagine bringing any one of these chapters into the classroom well that was another way of thinking about it because you know the book I mean I hope the book reaches as wide an audience as possible but of course part of the audience that we're looking at here is you know there's a there's a global upsurge in sports history courses in universities I mean you know that from your own teaching experiences the same for me and it's it's extremely welcome and it can be difficult uh, to find books that, that professors can use and that, that can give students overviews of topics where they could perhaps pull out a chapter. And so I think the thematic approach definitely had that in mind, that students could, you could assign, if students look, if you've got a student who's really interested in, in sports arenas and stadiums, you could assign them that chapter to get a kind of overview of how football spaces have evolved over these 150 years. So yes, it, I think from a sort of, from the university classroom point of view, there are some benefits to it, I think. And I think also thematic, it helps with analysis, really. I think that's really the benefit of thematic. I think with chronology, it's it's a safer option. 
And it does feed into that, you know, maybe that kind of more popular history idea of you tell the story in the order that it happened. But I do think that thematic allows for, yes, a wider analytical framework maybe, um, and to bring in different things from different areas. And I think one of the the brilliant things that I loved about doing this project was just the research of finding out um, what colleagues are doing and just just how much stuff there is out there on football and indeed more widely on sports history. Not all of it is absolutely amazing, but there's so much great <laughs> stuff. And, um, and you know, like, so with the thematic approach, you could, you know, you could juxtapose the story in, of my, in migrations of footballers in various um, African colonial states, um, along with, you know, Algeria's relationship with France, um, Portugal's with Angola and Mozambique. I mean, you, I think you could just bring the thematic works very well with that global approach. Obviously I was trying to do in the book. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And migration in reading migrations, I was like, Oh, I could see immediately kind of the benefit of this, of the thematic approach, which allowed you to break down some of those national barriers as you, as you note, but also to, to look at the issue of migration in a much broader frame too, because you weren't, you didn't have to have an intervening chapter about world war two or something where you're like, okay, so there's not many people migrating right now. And it starts back yes. up again. <laughs> you could just jump immediately. You could go, Oh, it's, I'm in the 1930s and now I'm in the 1960s and guess what? It's 2000 now. And so, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, the, and the interesting thing actually, when I think about it, as we're chatting, um, is although the chat, a lot of the chapters have similar chronological marker points in the sense that at the moment when football goes from being to becoming a mass sport in many parts of Europe and certainly South America is probably in and around and after the first world war, the moment in which you get the kind of sort of first stirrings of sort of post-war celebrity culture, the rise of television and, and, and players becoming better paid is probably around the sixties. Uh, the real global transformation of football as this giant neoliberal project, if you like, is probably from the nineties onwards. So, you know, you can plug migration or money or even spectators probably into those broad timelines and they, they, they do cohere in different ways. So I think if you're reading the chapters separately and then they can actually join together in different ways. Um, and, you know, the migration story is interesting because, I mean, you know, one of the tasks I set myself with the book, I think, was to kind of, you know, fill blanks in my own football education, particularly with regards to women's football. And so migration was one in, in the early chapter. One of the ways in which to do that was to think about some of the ways in which migration of women footballers, uh, as opposed to men football, male footballers, obviously developed at a later point in history, I would say, but developed in some possibly quite interesting in different ways, both in terms of directions and hubs, but also perhaps in terms of motivations. So that was nice to be able to think about, you know, again, almost like I say, to educate myself as much as anything at the beginning and then hopefully the audience that all of these stories um, are not just male-centred stories. And I think, you know, I'm sure all historians and perhaps particularly white male historians like me uh, with two kids, two daughters, um, who I'm trying to persuade to like football as much as me. It felt very, import- it felt very important to, to kind of think about the ways in which we unthinkingly tell the narratives of, of football or indeed other sports from male perspective. So through migration, you can kind of tell the story from a different perspective and actually have different outcomes, which enrich the story of, of the migration of male footballers. Actually. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I'm, this raises so many questions for me, actually, and I'm tempted, you know, again, my my uh, chronological temptation is to ask you then have the order of the chapters you wrote and things like that mm. and, or, or the decisions you made and, and why you started with migration. But actually, one of the more interesting, like one thing that when I was reading the book, I literally had to put it down and go, whoa, that's really cool mm. uh, is in your in your chapter called gender. You start out writing that chapter and you just write about football you don't write about women's football but you're writing about women playing football but you you start mm-hmm. out by not using the word women and so contextually i was i picked up immediately that you're talking about women playing football but it was a really interesting choice and i wonder if you can talk a little bit about kind of how you wrote that chapter why you made that choice at the beginning and what are you trying to bring out in that chapter mm-hmm. well i'm going to give credit to one of my best and oldest friends here leon who but planted the seed in my head when he was, we were chatting about ideas for the book and themes actually. And he, and he talked about, he was the first person I think who said to me, you know, you should write the opening of that chapter. 
um, as if this is the story of football that's handed down to us. You know, the story we're all told by our fathers and grandfathers or mothers and grandmothers indeed. And so from that sort of seed of that idea that Leon gave me, I started to think of ways in which you could kind of, well, I suppose slightly wrong for the reader in some respects. And I've, I have had a couple of people say to me, oh, okay, I was a bit confused, but then I got it because obviously the context becomes clear. Um, but I, th- I think it came back to, to what I was saying. Almost, I started off in the project thinking about ways in which I, I had to sort of tell myself to include the story of women footballers in the history of modern football because, you know, as I was kind of getting across in the introduction to that chapter, the, the de facto, you know, or the default position rather, is always men's football. We don't need that gender signifier here. So what happens when you take away the gender signifier and just talk about the history of football, um, meaning women's football rather than men's football? And, of course, the result is, and, and as you'll know if you know the story, if you read the introduction, is you get a very, very different story, a story of grassroots agency, a story of official oppression or, at the very least, indifference, and a kind of global resurgence that happens, you know, probably at a similar time to men's football going viral from the 90s onwards, but in again, in some very different ways. So, yeah, it was a way of, of making the reader and also me as an author think about how we write histories. And in particular, I think histories of sport, because um, for, for various reasons, and I'm sure we could unpack some of them if we had time, you know, that it, it remains in some respects quite a male-centred feel, both in terms of subject matter and perhaps even some of the people who participate in it. Now, that is changing, um, and I see that all the time at conferences. But I think some of those default positions still exist. So by, by kind of putting women front and centre in the story in that chapter, um, that you know kind of re-educates me and hopefully some of the readers there without being too didactic, fingers crossed. Yeah, no, I mean, conscious of the fact that we're both, uh, you know, acknowledging the fact that we're both white male historians yes. talking about this, um, I thought that chapter yeah. was just great because uh, a lot of times when I've been in the press kind of commenting uh, about equal the equal pay issue in women's football, and one of the things you always hear when you're in the press or talking about that is, oh, well, it's just the market. You know, mm-hmm. but what your chapter really brings out is that actually, you know, for various reasons, governments and other institutions have supported subsidized male football for a long time. And, you know, it's only now that once the systems and structures are put in place that people want to talk about the market after 100 years. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, th- and, and as I think there's lots of interesting research to show now that, you know, it's, there's always been lots of myths about women and football um, about the fact that they didn't play, they weren't interested in the game. And there's actually loads of, kind of pretty remarkable research to show the extent to which women were playing football in many different places in the world, not just in England or Scotland, you know, from the late 19th century onwards. And that that was consciously, you know, as I mentioned in the chapter, was consciously repressed. You know, in, in England, famously, the FA uh, outlawed women's football in 1921. Something similar happens in Brazil, in West Germany after World War II. Um, so the stories have kind of, yes, it's not just the market. The market isn't this passive, magical thing um, which works just by chance to the benefit of men's football clubs and male footballers. Uh, that's the product of a series of sort of historical choices by male actors, usually in football associations, I would say, and sometimes in governments, to consciously exclude women from playing football and the consequences of that you know as I say just thinking about you know if I think about growing up like there was no part of me that really thought about women playing football particularly um because my you know in the schools I was at you know generally this was the 80s early 90s generally um girls played netball and boys played football for example in the UK um but yeah on the other hand you know the biggest football fan I know is my mom I mean she's probably the person who taught me (laughs) she's yeah, she's probably, you know, she's probably the person who, you know, the most passionate, um, you know, in good and bad ways, uh, supporter of a team apart from me that I know. So, you know, I, I, I'd grown up thinking, you know, I hadn't really thought that my mum was probably the biggest Liverpool fan that I knew. But equally, I grew up in a society where women's football was very much on the margins. That was beginning to change, but not in ways that me as a 14-year-old would have noticed, right? 
So, yeah, as, as, as I say, I, as much as for the readers, it was the book, writing the book was a, an education for me in, in filling in gaps of my ignorance of the history of the sport I love. And, and so hopefully some of that comes across. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah def I, I think it definitely does um one of the other chapters uh in when i was perusing it i thought maybe this was the chapter that i was most distant from but actually i found it really interesting was was uh, your chapter on money you, mm. you write an e economic history of, of football as you call it so I, I wonder if you can talk about how that chapter developed and what are some of the things you're trying to draw out there i can talk about that chapter because it's probably the hardest one for me to write because you it's interesting you saying that's the one you're most distant from and it's kind of true for me as well i mean i think i would consider myself more of a kind of a cultural and social historian i guess and those are the things that interest me you know fan cultures and you know resistance through football i mean those are themes that were front and center in my book on east german football so writing about the history of money and football um, it was quite difficult, actually, partly because it was one of the chapters where it felt so overwhelming that it was difficult to kind of get footholds in some ways um, and to think about the ways in which money has shaped football. And perhaps also, as I suggest somewhere in the chapter, that football's shaped money. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not an economist. I'm not really, I'm not an economic historian. They're not my areas of interest. So I, I was, I suppose in the chapter on money, I was trying to combine economic history with kind of, if you like, cultural and political history of how football becomes quote unquote, and it is probably quote unquote, big business, right? How it goes from being you know, this fairly marginal sport at the start to a global phenomenon played by working class people from many parts of the world uh, to a sport that becomes, you know, from the 90s onwards, let's say, or perhaps from the 70s onwards, uh, this kind of global behemoth this financial behemoth at least in the sporting world and and to be honest with you i think it's a very difficult chapter to write because the economic history of football is is very different if you focus on western europe for example than it is if you focus on the historical development of football in africa for example so it was quite a difficult chapter to write but what i tried to do in it was to show the ways in which um well, firstly, that football was not, and, and even today, isn't quite the big business. That, that There's a lot of kind of lazy cliches about football, and the idea that it's big business is, is perhaps one of them. You know, most football clubs even today, you know, operate at losses. Um, even the, some of the biggest clubs in the world, as you kind of alluded to earlier, get pretty <laughs> handsome. They get pretty handsome subsidies from local governments or from states for their stadiums and so on in places like Spain and elsewhere. So I, I guess questioning the idea of football of big, of big, big business is one aspect of it but also tracing the ways in which football did become, through its kind of cultural power, really, the ways in which it became this mass sport. It became this money-making business for, for many people, stakeholders, to use that horrible term, who are involved in football. And so I looked a bit at the debates about between amateurism and professionalism in the early days of, of football's development, uh, the professionalization of leagues, and, and trying to pinpoint the moments at which um, – football perhaps begins to move away from its working class roots while always being wary as a kind of now middle-aged man that I can kind of sound a bit um, <laughs> nostalgic there, you know, as if, mm -hmm. as if the old days of football were all great. But So trying to pick point, pick the moments at which 
football really takes off into the stratosphere in which we now, in which it now finds itself, you know, as, as, as something, because I think a lot of perhaps younger readers maybe might, might not always know this, but, you know, football, when I was growing up in the 80s in, in England, um, and, I, and I have distinct memories as a nine or 10-year-old of sitting down to watch the 1985 European Cup final in my full Liverpool kit and then the game being delayed because of the, the crowd trouble and the Liverpool fans charging the Juventus fans and 39 people dying. And football at that moment, certainly in Britain, but I think also in other parts of the world, was was not the kind of culturally fashionable thing it is now. Um, it wasn't the thing that had all the lucrative contracts around it that it does now. So the kind of resurrection of football, if you like, the economic resurrection of football is an interesting theme, I think, um, from the sort of 90s onwards. How does football resurrect itself and, and I think with a rather bitter irony it's it, it's in, in many ways in response to some of those stadium disasters and football hooliganism in the 80s that football kind of gets its house in the order in order in the 90s but in ways that perhaps price out ordinary supporters if you like so it's, it's a complex story the money one and, I, and I'm glad even though the chapter's distant to you that, that you've got something out of it because I did find that quite a challenge to to kind of figure the way through that one one of the things I like most about that chapter um, is, in addition to the things that you've mentioned, is, um, I, and I found in my teaching that students tend to assume a kind of, um, they, they assume that the football world that exists today in terms of rich clubs and poor clubs and money and um, the movement of players has always existed. Mm-hmm. And so they don't understand that, you know, in the 50s, why maybe Brazilians would have stayed playing at Santos <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of, you know, why not come to Europe? And didn't everyone always want to play for Real Madrid? And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and this chapter really traces out that the production of these vast inequalities that actually don't, they're, they're obviously not normal, um, or just to say not natural uh, artifacts, they're produced historically, but also they're not forever. <laughs> they, they are produced in particular moments. And so yeah. that was really yeah, useful abs- for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's a, there's a couple of things there that are interesting. One is that the, and this kind of ties into the previous chapter on migration, because migration and money, you know, go quite well together. You know, that the, the migratory roots of football have not always been the roots you'd expect. You know, there's been periods like in the 1920s, for example, when the US was making some of its first attempts to establish a soccer league where players made journeys the other way, for example. There was the brief period after World War II when the Colombian League was flush with money and was kind of kicked out of FIFA and and players from Britain and elsewhere went to get uh, paid well and play in Colombia. So I think both in terms of patterns of the transnational flow of players and money has, has not always been in the directions we think. And they're not, as you're absolutely right in saying, they're not fixed entities. You know, the big clubs of today have not always been the big clubs. They've not always been the clubs that have, have drawn players from around the world. And so I think, yeah, this kind of ties into what I was saying about the kind of my memories of football growing up was, you know, and if you read something like Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch, right, which was published in, I think, 92, you know, I mean, that was published at a time when there wasn't really a, a fan fan culture literature, right? He was kind of writing from the perspective of what were then pariahs, people who really loved football. And so there's a lot of changes that have happened since then. And they seem normalized now because we've had 30 years of the game becoming bigger and bigger and and more advertised and more televised. But that story has not always been one way, you're right to say. And, and And the directional travel of players and money hasn't always been in one direction either. Yeah, I, I, that, um, for me, that was one of the big takeaways of that chapter that just showed mm-hmm. so clearly um, the, the in some ways, newness and possibly temporariness of some of these these financial arrangements. That well, well, to, you, you know, the inter- sorry, the interesting thing <laughs> thinking about this, like the, the you know, timing's everything, right? Of course, this book, Contested Fields, was published, I think, about maybe a week or two weeks before the entire world shut down with the COVID nineteen pandemic. And of course, you know, that would have made a perfect extra chapter. I don't know if you're doing the same, but I'm already teaching in my sports history class. We have a unit on, you know, global sport and COVID-19, you know. So, but to your point, the, the, the arrangements in sport can be temporary. I mean, I think one of the things COVID-19 showed and is probably still showing is 
the ways in which football and other sports have been financially impacted by COVID-19. Now, of course, you know, we haven't seen any high profile clubs around the world yet declare themselves bankrupt and they're probably going to survive because that's a very big yet <laughs> yeah yeah that is a big yet. exactly we are we're still pretty early in the game and you know i think there's an argument you could say you know that they're quote unquote too big to fail to use that term from the banking crisis of 2009 but i think covid19 and this it's kind of impact on sport which happened literally just after the book was published sadly um you know, that shows the fragility of some of these arrangements, right? That, that things can change quite quickly. And, and things that we just assume, whether it's about spectating or playing or television and sport, uh, can suddenly be swept away from us. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's good to remind people that the story of football, this success story that FIFA, UEFA, the English Premier League and others have kind of marketed since the 90s, which has a lot of validity to it, but the a, there are darker sides to that, obviously, and B, it wasn't always thus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm always uh, about contesting FIFA's particular narrative. And <laughs> yes, um, I think that, that that's probably. I think actually that was one of the other things that was just thinking finally on the money chapter. There's one of the other difficult things is like, well, how do you how do you write this chapter with any sort of semblance of uh, sort of academic temperance and balanced objective nature when you're writing about something as venal and corrupt as fifi you know it's it's a little bit hard to do isn't it you know um, luckily many people investigative journalists and historians have done the work for me so um i was indebted to them for wading through all the muck and filth of fifa's um dealings (laughs) so i could synthesize it in a few pages (laughs) it's funny yeah they're they're interesting they're interesting difficult to to work with group uh, sometimes well, from a historian's perspective, okay? Well, well the, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, the chapter I wrote on competitions, which obviously talks about kind of, to some degree, about international governance of sport and the evolution of, of kind of international competition, which, of course, in Shape of the World Cup and um, other big events becomes huge money-making enterprises. I mean, one of the fascinating elements of the global history of modern football, I think, is international governance, right? The ways in which um, FIFA emerges from the shadows of the International Olympic Committee to become certainly its equal. And some might argue today, you know, it's kind of the, the greater power of the two major supranational sports organizations. So, I mean, FIFA's, you know, pops up in the narrative <laughs> in many different ways and places, not always very favorably. But I think, I suppose, if we were crediting um, you have to give some credit to the organizations, whatever their motives for, for, for spreading the game, even a figure as reviled now as Joe Havalanche, who becomes FIFA president in 74, you know, whatever the many faults and corruptions around the Havalanche presidency of FIFA, you know, the game, he, he kept to his promises of globalizing the game and, and making it less uh, Eurocentric and frankly racist, which, you know, it had been for much of the first 60 or 70 years of its existence. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the importance of, of FIFA uh, and to a lesser extent, the IOC and democratizing the game. Your, your chapter on competitions mm. um, does does uh, bring some of that out. But you're also I mean, you do temper that with discussions of, uh, you know, mega events. And I don't think you keep I don't think it's far from mind that, you know, FIFA is a rights holder and not a magician yeah. of <laughs> You know, yes, football. and not just they this. Don't own not the just game. they own the the World Cup, quote unquote, TM. You know, yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, I remember going to the 2006 World Cup in Germany, and um, and you know, there were and the whole thing, and you know, there was lots of talk about you know what beers you could have in and around the stadium. Because of course, I think Budweiser yeah. had the contract they for the did, stadium, yeah, yeah. and um, and I remember, you know, even some clothing I was wearing had a. They were the FIFA kind of the people checking the bags and so on were kind of worried about kind of the wrong branding being on the hat I was wearing or something. And you think, ah, oh, this is where we've got to really, you know. So it's yeah, there's lots of elements of the story that are, are quite unsavory and, and pretty depressing, of course. And and that's I think the the fascinating element of the globalization of football story is that um, there's the kind of marketing spiel of FIFA um, and, and, and all its trademarks, which is one element of the story. But there's also the other element of the story, and I you know, try and get to that bit through things like spectator cultures and the kind of the more grassroots connections between fans and players and so on and so forth. The ways in which 
as you suggest, not you know, a lot of the global history of football is is not run because of the munificence of FIFA, and it's not run through FIFA. FIFA is an important part of the story, but there's, uh, I mean, what's always interested me is the ways in which international connections can can occur through sport, not just through the official and diplomatic channels of governance, but 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 all different levels, and I think that's always. You know, as a sort of more of a cultural and a social historian, that's always what's really fascinated me about sport as an international practice. Yeah, I, I'd uh, I'd love I I agree completely, <laughs> and I guess I'd love to take some time. You've mentioned it a few times, but to turn specifically to that uh, chapter on spectators and maybe also co- kind of confrontations at the same time. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, a lot of it is kind of read through the lens of resistance. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you were trying to do. Um, and talking about spectators and mm-hmm. and uh, confrontations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've, I've been subtly hinting we should move on to talk about spectators. So there we go. We we finally made it to do that. So that's good. Uh, you um, really have to hit the over the head <laughs> with it. <I'm... laughs> so we have to talk about money. Let's get on to fans. But it's all um, very interesting. I think this. I mean, I've grappled with this issue of um, sport as a site of you know, resistance or opposition a lot in, in classes I've taught. Also in my work on East German football where, you know, I, kind of one of the central arguments of, of the people's game is that football, you know, becomes a really important site of cultural and in some ways political autonomy for East Germans, which is not to say that football led to the fall of the Berlin Wall or anything like that. But if you if you look in the 1980s, um, you know, we, we know a lot in East Germany about the peace and the environmental movements and the beginnings of kind of dissident movements in East Germany. But really the thing that the most that most East Germans were pissed off about in the 1980s was the dominance of the Stasi team, the secret police team, Dinamo Berlin, who won the league every year by allegedly having referees in their pocket. And that was exciting public anger like nothing else. You know, in stadiums, you get cries of Stasi out or the wall must go, which of course could be a reference to a free kick or something mm-hmm. much more political. So I was always interested, even before coming to contested fields, in the ways in which football and sport more generally can work as sites of, of protest. And of course, that topic's only become more current in the past year with the sort of rise of athlete activism through Black Lives Matter and various other sort of, you know, the increased political engagement of athletes is, is a really interesting element of the story. But yes, here I was focusing more on um, spectators and, and kind of some of the ways in which, I mean, I was really interested in, in the spectator chapter and thinking about and unpicking the ways in which spectator cultures, which are often nationalised, I think, you know, like the English hooligan, you know, the, the, the Italian ultra and so on and so forth, the ways in which spectator cultures kind of rubbed against each other and influenced each other. And, and found some fascinating examples of that, you know, like like Yugoslav fans in, in the 1950s who, who took inspiration from kind of fan culture that they saw um, from Brazilian fans that they'd encountered through the 1950 World Cup as one example. Just this brilliant levels of sort of informal cultural exchange that happened through spectatorship. That was a really fascinating element of the story. Yeah, I, um, I, I think I don't know if we've said enough Um just how transnational the work is. I, we focused a little bit in our discussion on kind of Europe, mm. but it's, it's, uh, it's not just a story about Europe and it's, and, uh, European teams. And it, you, 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 I, I will kind of, uh, for listeners, I want to really emphasize like that we're both European historians in some ways. So I think we're, we're more comfortable talking in those spaces, but, um, you through a really broad reading really bring in soccer from almost everywhere in the globe and spectator experiences from from a really wide range of places yeah it's i'm glad you mentioned that because i you know i do tend to defer i suppose to a eurocentricity in what i'm thinking about because that's what i've done my most of my own research but yes i was very conscious in the book of, of trying to get beyond the kind of Western European and South American, big three South American centers of world football, I suppose, and to think about what was happening in other parts of the football world, and including in parts of the world that are not often seen as being as quote-unquote football friendly. So I was particularly interested in, you know, especially in these chapters on spectator culture and then on confrontation and resistance in the ways in which 
uh, football was used as, as a kind of agent of colonial anti-colonial resistance. I mean, that's fascinated me in, in courses I've taught. You know, the, the experience of the, um, the Algerian footballers who essentially walk out on the French national team in the late 50s to join the team of the revolutionary movement of the National Liberation Front, the FLN, during the um, Algerian War as, as just one example of the ways in which football was tied into to, to wider issues in the transnational world. And, de- and decolonization was, was one of these, I think. So, yes, there's, there's so many great stories, particularly from um, colonial and post-colonial Africa, of football's central importance in, in kind of inventing the nation. You know, I think about a country like Ghana, for example, uh, maybe also Tanzania, you know, places where football was very important to the political elites that took power, um, at independence and become central to their efforts to kind of create um, both national and pan-African identities. I think of the case of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana here, you know, football and the creation of the AFCON and um, hosting the AFCON, the African um, Cup of Nations is, is a huge part of Ghana's sort of um, entry onto the international, certainly the continental political stage in the 1960s. So yeah, tried to go as much as possible beyond the tried and tested fields that I know the best, Britain and Germany and other places, and um, get out in the world. And and that was the brilliant thing was I found football stories everywhere. You know, like just people have done some amazing research, like anthropological field research from, you know, um, indigenous groups, you know, in the jungles of Peru, where um, as one piece, one, one reading I found, like, the centre of the village was the football pitch. Like it's not like, I don't know, the, the town hall or even the, the equivalent of a bar or a pub, it's the football pitch is the geographical centre of, um, of, of the village. So all of that stuff is just fascinating because you see the ways in which football um, has so many other levels of story that we can tell. And, I, you know, I really was, there wasn't enough of it in the book, but I was, you know, just trying to tell some of the grassroots stories of football, whether it's from fan culture or, migratory players, you know, because some people who migrate are amateur footballers. Trying to get some of that into the story uh, was, was also fun as well. Talking with you and, and thinking back to reading of it, it just strikes me again how difficult it must have been to actually decide on these categories because you could have e- equally had a chapter called Grassroots uh, in your chapter yeah, that was, on I think race. that was on my initial list, actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, your chapter on race and migration both speak to the kind of importance of football in shaping identity, whether they're hybridized or non-hybridized mm-hmm. identities. But then all of this comes back to confrontations and state-making programs. <laughs> so it's a lot yeah, of- absolutely. So, so in that sense, you know, to go back to something I was mentioning earlier, although the thematic approach in some ways, as we were saying, is it's possibly a little riskier and a bit harder to follow in some respects. I think a lot of these stories do coalesce. Race and migration, you know, the, the interconnectedness of those two stories is huge, obviously. Um, confrontations, political confrontations through football, we see in many of the different chapters. Um, they just kind of reach a peak, I suppose, in that, that final chapter where I look at you know some of the most famous examples of football confrontation. Um, so yes, I mean, gen- gender was one of my chapters. Yeah, yeah, gender, gender and spectators. Yeah. yeah, gender and migration too, as we we talked about earlier. But yes, I mean, I, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about actually for something else I've been writing recently is uh, about Liverpool. Actually, is is kind of the and, you know, again, it's kind of starts from my mum, really. But, you know, like, the, the you know, the this this default idea that, that's very widespread, I think, in, if we can call it, fan literature that's emerged around football in the past 30 years. You know, some of it's the hooligan literature, some of it's more kind of sort of post-Nick Hornby literature. The, the default position, again, is almost always male. And so, again, trying to kind of get past that and think about the ways in which spectatorship was never exclusively a male domain, even in periods when we associate it exclusively with men. And so I think that was, yeah, I mean, so gender comes into a number of the different chapters and and kind of reinforces what I wrote in the specific gender chapter, hopefully. So um, I I have, I mean, I I write out like a list of questions and we've touched on many of them, but there's so many more particular ones. I don't necessarily, um, you know, I could jump around, but I I, I wonder... um, if you want to talk to us a little bit about, because in your in your um, 
conclusion, you you raised some, I think, interesting questions about kind of the future of football mm. studies, the difficulties of you know studying football. And again, you published this book before COVID, so there's yeah. probably things to add. <laughs> but I guess you know what is kind of the future uh, of football studies for you? Uh, not for uh, I'll give you some space to talk about your next project too. But what, what kind of where do you think the field is going? You know, where should we be going? Well, I mean, I think in terms of kind of, I think that the redressing of the balance in terms of kind of the, the male centeredness of, of football history is, is something I think, and of course, football and sports history is not the only fields in our profession that are currently grappling with that. That's, <laughs> you know, a pretty widespread. So I think that's one thing that is beginning to happen. Um, so, you know, so that we don't have a history of football that is just male dominated. And of course, even, you know, my history of football, you know, tries to include as much of women's football history as possible, but it's still overwhelmingly, like if I think of the chapter on competitions, it's, I mean, I do mention the emergence of the Women's World Cup, but it's mostly men's competitions. So I think, you know, work work that moves us um, to kind of correct that those gender imbalances is important. Personally, as someone who likes cultural and social history, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in... Um, sporting histories that kind of get to the, the basis of, um, for example, um, a, a big bugbear of mine is, and as this comes across in the book, I'm sure, uh, although I have to write about it, is the, is the obsessive focus in football spectator literature, both academic and non-academic, on hooliganism. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in, in kind of thinking about how football and other sports are consumed more widely away from that. And, I think trying trying to get trying to get at that is an important element of the story. Um, I mean, I think one of the difficulties of, of football and sports history, generally speaking, and I think you know, I think of this from my various encounters with football clubs I've t- tried to talk to, both in Germany and Britain, and also you mentioned trying to get hold of them or trying to get contacts with them, international organisations too. I think you know that it's difficult to sometimes find a corpus or a source base for football history. It can be quite all over the place with mm-hmm. quite isolated figures as sports historians. You know, with, you know, there are one or two honorable exceptions. There aren't too many places where there's a great gathering of sports historians in one institution. So often it feels like, I mean, one of the great things about this project was just in uncovering new work by people I knew by name or had met once at a conference and kind of really getting into the work and seeing how much there is out there that's really starting to push football and sports history in some of these directions. And to me, those directions should be transnational. They should be inclusive on issues of gender and race. And they should, I think, be more interested. And this is something I'm I'm always conscious of, of trying to tell a story. And this book is not really the right book for that entirely, but trying to tell a story of of sport from the bottom up as much as possible from a grassroots perspective. I mean, I, I had a section in my book on East German football, I, I tried to move beyond the sort of the elite game in East Germany and look at how people played the game, how it was part of their everyday life. And um, I think that to me is a really fascinating element of the sports history and football history story that remains to be told. And the grassroots combined with a kind of women's history of football is a really, that's really productive, I think, because a lot of women's football history, as I, as I mentioned in the book, you know, had to be kind of driven from below because it was being ostracized at the top and being kind of isolated and starved of funding. So I think, you know, historians and and others, sociologists and others are beginning to do that. So I think those are some of the main directions. But honestly, there's so many different ways in which you can go um, that it's it's pretty hard to pick it down, even before COVID hit. And I thought, oh, man, there was my extra chapter that I needed to write. My book is already obsolete. So, you know, that's that's, that's the perils of publishing at any time, I suppose. (laughs) Definitely not obsolete. No, no, no. Actually, I mean, like I say, as a a scholar in the field, I love the book for those reasons. And it made me think a little bit differently about about migration and about money. And um, but. Is, is in terms of somebody who teaches a unit on sports history, I was mm. I was like, oh well, these chapters are immediately extremely useful, and I can totally see myself assigning these chapters, and they would be great for students not only because they're great in terms of their kind of analytical uh, precision, but also because in your wide ranging approach, because you look at 
um, spectatorship, for example, in so many different places, it really helps solve for me the problem that I always have, which is when students go, I'm interested in X theme. I just don't know mm-hmm. where to or what to work on. And you can go, oh, you're interested in spectatorship. Great. <laughs> Read this chapter. chapter. Yeah. That's right. You, you just point them in the direction of it. And I think, and it's interesting, I think, to go back to a point I was mentioning earlier, that I think when people say to me, you know, I'm interested in this topic, it does tend to be, I think, um, I think we nationalize a lot of sports history. And so I think one of the things I really enjoyed about the project and, and hopefully came across and I'm glad it did to you was the, the way I loved all the different connections between spectator cultures and it, they might yeah. not be direct connections, but the ways in which fans behave in similar ways or the ways in which uh, they take influence from each other, for example, I think, I mean, that's just to me uh, fascinating and, and speaks to the ways in which football is the quintessential international story or kind of modern cultural, political, economic history. I mean, it is a global story and I think it's, it's the most productive and I think the most interesting way to tell the story of football. And I guess like, you know, that, that was imbued in me when I was a little kid and I, without even thinking about it, you know, I was, was more interested in Scotland and West Germany and then later East Germany than I was in the country that I grew up playing, watching football, England. And so I think that's the beautiful thing about sport, right? That we, you know, we, we can root for teams and players that, that have nothing to do with us. And I think to get across a sense of that, the positive elements of that international story, in the, the spectators chapter in particular, not just the hooligan story. Uh, yeah. It was important to me, you know? Well, I'm very keen and I do want to ask, uh, ask you in a second, and maybe this, maybe given what you're saying that maybe you're working on something like this, but I want to see one of the directions I see maybe football studies going is in a history of post fandom, mm-hmm. which I think would be really interesting. It plays right into those ideas you're talking about. Although I guess since you mentioned being a, a, an Englishman who's interested in German football, I do I do wonder if you're going to be conflicted in a week or so. <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah, that's right. I'm good. I'm going to be. Um, yeah, I'll have um, I'll have two different hats on uh, in that, <laughs> when, when when the two teams play. But yeah, I, it's funny. I've I've always. I mean, like a lot. I mean, I'm a, so I'm a Liverpool supporter, and of course, Liverpool. And this will bring me on to some of the stuff I'm working on. But Liverpool has always been prided itself in its kind of scouts not english approach and i mean that's one of the other interesting elements of football history is that there's lots of local and regional identities and i always thought football was interesting from that point of view because yes there's the national history of national teams but there's also extremely intense local identity in in football and sport particularly football um but that local identity can then be transplanted to other parts of the world right you know that you can get there's this huge Liverpool following in Australia and many other places, giant, right? You know, giant, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and and it's a lot of people who've never set foot, some people anyway, who've never had the fortune to set foot in, in Liverpool Stadium Anfield. So, I mean, yeah, anyway, um, yes. No, uh, but I mean, at the post-fan, the post-fan yeah. would be an interesting thing to talk about, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I think um, maybe there's a younger generation of historians who can do that better than me because I feel I'm, I'm getting too old and crusty to, you know, waxing nostalgic about the old days of fandom. So, so maybe there's a younger generation of scholars who can do that for me. Well, it, I mean, I'm sure you're not old and crusty entirely. It sounds like you have a new, uh, you have a new project on some kind of Scouse football. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the ultimate vanity project, right? Like, you know, you, you kind of, um, you know, we, we, we began our discussion by talking about, well, how did you end up becoming a football historian? And now I'm taking it to the nth degree by, by trying to tackle writing about the club that I've grown up supporting and, and my family's, some of my dad's side of the family is from Liverpool. And so I'm, I'm writing a sort of a cultural and social history of, an, and an international history, I should say, really, of, of Liverpool Football Club, focusing on um, the off-the-field stuff, you know, the, the fan culture in particular. And... The international element of that story. So actually, the project builds on what I've been doing in contested fields in terms of thinking about the international connections that come through one football club. So yeah, I've it, it kind of research has been a bit stymied, obviously by COVID, as I'm sure is the case for all of us. Yeah. But um, yeah, just had just had um, a couple of pieces published that are kind of working towards that, and um, and I'm also working just to go back to the to your point about wearing two hats. So that's my English football hat. I also have a German football hat, and I'm just finishing up um, uh, working as an editor on a collection on. Uh, Football Nation, which is going to be out with Burkhan probably in about a year, 
a year or so, uh, which is a collection of essays on um, German football, culture, history and society. So um, I have definitely got one foot in each of those rival camps. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to both of those projects too, and um, I'm hopeful to see them both out soon. I'll do my best, Keith. It's been great talking to you. Great. So th- thank you all for listening. Uh, my name is Keith Rathbone. This is the New Books and Sports podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Alan McDougall. He's a professor of history at the University of Guelph, and he is the author of the much uh, recommended Contested Fields, A Global History of Modern Football, out with uh, Toronto Uni- uh, University of Toronto Press in 2020. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Alan. Thank you very much, Keith. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.